Good morning. Thank you for the lovely music. Girls, plastic surgery doctor. Mermaids, plastic surgery. Princess, plastic surgery. And superstar face are just a few of the online gaming apps that give children the chance to use simulated scalpels, syringes, and surgical scissors to slice open faces. According to Melinda Tankard Rice of ABC News Australia, in one game, a player jabs a large needle into the lips of a young girl so that they instantly become the size of sausages. With another, an oxygen mask is put over the girl's mouth so that they can cut her nose with a scalpel. In one game, a larger sized girl in saggy underwear has a hose attached to her arm to suck out all the fat. The game instructs them on how to use ice to numb pretreatment sites, lighten dark skin, decrease larger noses, carve off weight, and achieve rounded eyes. Apparently, there are hundreds of cosmetic surgery games available thanks to Apple, Google, and Amazon. And most are free. Animated characters and vibrant graphics are used. One game's promoter wrote, if makeup can't give the beauty you want, then come join this amazing plastic surgery game. Every girl's dream dreams of a delicate face and a stunning figure. Childhood experts are horrified. They claim we are normalizing and glamorizing the concept of change your appearance and you will be happier. Melinda Tankard Rice explains, the 2016 Mission Australia Youth Study identified body image as a top issue of concern for young Australians, and the National Eating Disorder Collaboration reports that 70% of young women experience body dissatisfaction. She writes, there is unprecedented growth in non-surgical procedures like Botox, with Australians spending at least $1 billion on cosmetic treatments each year. The writer then ends her article asking the question, do we really want our girls to grow up believing that surgically altering their appearance is a normal part of being a woman? That's a really good question. What do we want our girls to know? What will we tell them is normal and true? Will they be happier if they change their appearance? What should we believe about our bodies and beauty? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Esther chapter 2? Esther chapter 2, all right, 
Sorry. Sorry about that. Okay. I want to get start with a quick recap from last week. Last week, we read about Queen Vashti and how the king summoned her to come and display her beauty to all of the men at his frat party. And then she refused to come. And so she was removed and it was decided that a new queen would be selected. And then a law was written that said that all women in the kingdom must now respect their husbands. Okay, that's chapter one. Let's start with chapter two. Chapter two, verse one says this. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, he had, what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. All right. Now, the, this chapter starts with the little phrase, after these things. And so you want to point back, you know, that's talking about the things that took place in chapter one. All right. But it's also secular history tells us a lot about what takes place between Esther chapter one and Esther chapter two. And the typical average original reader would have likely known those things. Now, for instance, they would have known that King Ahasuerus goes to battle against Greece. And this is probably a good time for a little history lesson. Ahasuerus, his father, was named King Darius, Darius the Great. And King Darius is involved in one of the most famous, perhaps one of the most defining battles in all of history. He puts together the largest army the world's ever known at that time, and he marches into Greece to fight the Athenians. Now, it's said that he is outnumbering the Athenians from eight, about eight to one. Some say it's not that high, but the, the Athenians are really outnumbered. And so they take their fastest runner and they give him a message to, do, to go try to get help from the Spartans. So he's running at top speed. It takes him two days. He gives the message, then they give him a message, and then so he runs back again at top speed. Well, by the time he gets back, the news, news is looking better, and so now he's given a message that he's going to run 25 miles to Athens. The legend is he hands over his message and then drops dead of exhaustion. The battle is known as the Battle of Marathon. And if you have ever run in a marathon, you have this battle to thank. Also, if you enjoy democracy and capitalism, they tell us that you have this battle to thank. It's said that if, um, the historians say, that if the Persians had been victorious instead of the Western thinking Greeks, the, our globe would look very different today. So, okay, now what does any of that have to do with the Book of Esther? Well, King Darius does not accomplish what he set out to achieve. And so, and he dies before he has a chance to restore his good name and seek revenge. And so that is going to be something that his son will have to do. Okay, so this um, history tells us that King Ahasuerus holds a war council 
That's probably what's taking place in Esther chapter 1. And then after that, between Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2, he marches off to Greece. He takes a huge army and navy. He lands in the southern tip of Greece, and he just begins to devour the whole countryside. But his eyes are on Athens. He wants Athens. And to get to Athens, he has to cram his huge army into this tiny little mountain pass. Well, the Athenians, they're outnumbered, but they're trying desperately to hold that little mountain pass. But they see they're not going to be able to do it. So they have a plan. We're going to retreat and go back and take care of Athens. So they're able to do that because of 300 brave, courageous Spartans that step forward very sacrificially and agree to hold the line while the rest of the army can retreat. If you've ever seen movies about the 300 Spartans or you've ever um, seen video games or anything like that, um, that's what we're talking about, those 300 Spartans. And the invading opposing king is the very king from the book of Esther. He will um, go on to win that battle, but he will suffer great loss. And so when he finally gets to Athens, all the people are gone. They've escaped to this little island known as the Island of Salamis. And so Ahasuerus thinks, okay, fine, I'm going to take my navy in there, and we're just going to be done with this. But that is exactly what the Athenians wanted him to do. The Spartans had very swift boats that had battle rams on it. And so the Persian boats, they go in there, they're big, they're slow, and they become sitting ducks to the Athenian navy, or to the Spartan ships. It's said that King Ahasuerus is sitting up on a mountaintop because he wants to have a good view of the battle and watch the victory, and instead he watches as one ship after another begins to sink. It's said that he is basically watching his navy disappear before his eyes. He will return home humiliated. And financially, this has been a complete disaster. Now, we're going to want to remember that because that will become important as we go. All right. But all of that has taken place by the time you get to Esther chapter 2. And he comes into Esther chapter 2, and it tells us he returns home, and he starts missing his wife. And he starts to remember what he's decreed about her. Okay, and now let's remember, whose idea was it to get rid of her? Do you remember? His counselors, right? His men. So, you know what? They don't want him thinking about this too long. So they bring up the idea, hey, listen, why, why don't we have a contest? Let's have a Miss Persia contest. Let's go through the land and pick out all the prettiest women, and then we'll bring them up here, and then you can pick out the prettiest one you want. And, and he liked that idea. He was all for it. Now, um, good thing we need to point out, usually king's wives came from nobility. Usually their wives came from the daughters of his noblemen. Um, if you've ever watched any of those shows about royalty, you, you know that the lineage of a spouse is very important. You didn't just go off and marry somebody off the streets or a commoner. So everything that we're seeing here about this idea is totally unusual. It's not something that would typically happen. All right, let's pick up chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Ayer, the son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. 
He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, we're introduced to new, two new characters. They're going to be main characters in this story. Mordecai is a Jew. We get his background. We come to find out how he got to be in Persia. And then we learn about Esther. We learn she's a young orphan and that Mordecai has been raising her as his own daughter. We learn that she's beautiful, that she's beautiful face, beautiful figure. She's a knockout. We got a pretty good idea where the story's going. And um, let's, let's read that in verse 8. So when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now Esther is chosen. Now we want to see something here. Because from here on in, there's all kinds of debate about Esther's participation. And oftentimes you will have teachers that will romanticize this whole beauty contest. And they'll try to make it sound like all these women that were involved were like, uh, you know, Cinderella and her wicked stepsisters. You know, just so excited to be invited to the ball. And, um, but this is where paying attention to the words is going to be really helpful. I want you to notice in verse 8. It says the king's order, his edict, the women are gathered, they're collected. He uses the word custody. He uses the word taken. Okay, if somebody wants to go, uh, try to be Miss America, she volunteers for that position. She has a say in the matter. Okay, that's, that's not going on here. All right, some commentaries say these women could have been as young as 13. Now, um, I want you to imagine your daughter. Let's say you have a daughter and she goes to school or she goes to the mall and, and while she's there, some foreign dignitary comes in and he begins going through the place, picking out all the pretty girls and he takes them. And the parents would have been expected to hand them over, never to see them again. Now, uh, you, you may have had women that thought, you know, this is my ticket out of here. At least I'll eat well and have a warm bed. But, but for the most of them, this would have been devastating. And here's why. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Okay, this is how this worked. The girls, uh, they were chosen. Then they are taken away from their home. And remember how big the kingdom is. Some of these girls would have come from very uh, long distances. They probably spoke a different language. Okay, and, but each girl, is, she comes and she is given a 12-month spa membership. 
And there she's going to be oiled and softened and groomed. You know, think about it. Some of these girls, they may have been farm girls or some kind of work hands, and they might have need cleaned up, needed a little makeover. And, um, and they probably would have had etiquette lessons, uh, royal, royal etiquette lessons. Um, before Kate Middleton married Prince William, it's uh, said um, that she had to have lessons in royal etiquette. In fact, all of his girlfriends did. So... Um, Anyway, when the year of spa treatments is over, the girl then had her turn to go into the king, and she could take whatever she wanted that might help her feel uh, pretty and sexy. Maybe she wanted jewels. Maybe she wanted furs. She very likely got to keep those things. And then in the evening, she would go in to see the king, and in the morning, she was sent packing. In the morning, she is given to the eunuch, a different eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And these concubines are removed from rotation. Okay? In other words, they don't ever see the king again unless he asks for them by name. He remembers them and asks uh, to call them back. All right, here's the thing. You were not set free. You were not excused to go back home and see mom. You were not excused to go back up and marry your high school sweetheart and start your own family. You lived forever with the concubines the rest of your life in isolation. It would have basically been like um, a prison with better living conditions. Okay, now, last week we learned that Queen Vashti was beautiful, and we learned the king wanted to show off her beauty. This week we read about the gathering of beautiful women to help the king out of his depression. We've learned about all the time and money and energy that will be spent to make women who were already beautiful more beautiful. And then to top it all off, we'll be told that a king sleeps with these women and some of them apparently only once. And so think about it. You've got all these women with all kinds of pressure to be beautiful and sexy and to stand out from all the other beautiful women in order to be happy. Does that sound familiar? <coughs> Beauty is uh, a factor in this book. It's not a theme, but it is a factor. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about that. How do you live in a culture where there is so much emphasis put on our physical beauty and sex appeal? How are we to understand beauty and its place in our lives? Now, this is a huge topic, and we've talked about this some, especially when we were doing First Peter. So what I want to do today is just go over a couple things that really work well with the Esther story. We're going to lay down a few basics, and then we're going to get real practical. Okay? Now, in the book of Esther, we see a familiar lie of the enemy that says, well, first of all, you've got this group of men, and they think that a man's problem is going to be solved by him finding a beautiful wife. And then on this side, you have these women that are told that they need to be beautiful in order for their problems to be solved. If they can just be pretty enough, they'll be happy. Change your appearance and you'll be happier. And, you know, basically there's been some version of that lie going on since the Garden of Eden. All right. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to try to nail down just some solid truths about beauty. Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible. 
We're going to start at verse 3. Genesis 1-3 says this, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Now, verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. End of verse 18. And God saw that it was good. End of verse 21. And God saw that it was good. Okay? Skip to verse 31. End of it. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, did you see the repetition? It was very good. Now that word good in the Hebrew is the word tov, and I have it on your papers. Um, sometimes that word is translated beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, in other words, we could say with great accuracy, and God saw that the light was beautiful. And God saw that it was beautiful. And God saw that all that he had made, and it was very beautiful. Here's the first point on your paper. Number one, the Bible reveals God as the author, creator, and bestower of beauty. Let me put that another way. Beauty is God's idea. He is the source of beauty. Now, here's our next verse, and I actually put it on your paper. It's Psalm 27, 4, watch for the word now. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. All right, here's our second point. Number two, God is beautiful. Okay, God is the beautiful one. Not only is he the author and the creator of beauty, but he himself is beautiful. Okay, now, now do you know what that means? <clears throat> that means that beauty is important to God. This subject is not off limits. And it's certainly not just something for the fashion bloggers to be talking about. Here's our next point. Number three, we have been created to desire beauty. We have been created to desire beauty. We've talked about this before. It's a topic that we, that we hit when we talked about womanhood because we made the connection between this desire and our femininity. But this morning, I want us to see the bigger picture. We desire beauty because God is beautiful. We desire, we crave beauty because we have been made in the image of God. All right, here's our next point. Number four, our perception of beauty has been corrupted by sin. Our perception of beauty, our relationship with the beauty of God is, has been corrupted by sin. Okay, now turn to Genesis 3. We have to go there. Um, Genesis 3, verse 6. This will be familiar. Genesis 3, 6 says this. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's, it was beautiful, the tree was beautiful for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Okay. They ate the fruit and their eyes are opened. Now they know good and evil. And from this point on, everything changes for mankind. Sin has entered. They've disobeyed God and now sin has entered the world. All right, we talked about this last week. We said they were created to do this. Okay, they were created for communion with God. But now they're doing this. They're hiding. They're hiding from God. They're looking at their bodies and they're realizing they're naked. Sin enters and now there's a separation between them and the beauty of God. Okay. What's the remedy? Well, how have we answered that the past two weeks? Here's our next point. Number five. Ultimately, our desire for beauty is revealing our need for a savior. Our desire for beauty is pointing us to the need for a savior. Okay, our desire for beauty is reminding us how desperately we need Jesus, okay? We want to be beautiful. We want to be loved. We want our hearts wooed. And that can only be met in the person of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save us from our sin and restore the relationship between man and the beauty of God. All right, here's our next, but well, no. What I want to do is give you a good definition of true beauty. And this comes from Carolyn Mahaney, She's got a great book on the topic of beauty. Number six is true beauty is to behold and reflect the beauty of God. Okay, true beauty is not what you see on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine or in the Miss America contest. True beauty is to behold and reflect the beauty of God. And apart from believing upon Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, and make you a new person, you cannot do this. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time getting very practical about this. How can we live in the midst of a culture that has its own definition of beauty and is obsessed with it? In the book of Esther, there is no mention of God. The people were living as if there was no God, as if there was no law. So how do we... Behold and reflect the beauty of God in a godless society. Okay, here's our next point. And it's also from Carol Mahaney, Carolyn Mahaney. We must not allow the world to press us into its beauty mold. Now, what does she mean by that? Okay, is she saying that we shouldn't be concerned with our outward appearance? Um... On your papers, I have our next passage, and it should be familiar. We've gone over this. It comes from 1 Peter 
First Peter 3 says this, Do not let your adornment be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Okay, Peter is not forbidding outward adornment. Okay, now we know that, otherwise he would be forbidding the wearing of clothes. Okay, so he isn't forbidding the braiding of the hair or the wearing of gold jewelry. He isn't forbidding the coloring of the hair or the straightening of the teeth, or the wearing something fashionable, okay? He isn't forbidding us from trying to look nice on the outside. All right, what I want you to do is I want you to circle that little word, but, in verse 4. Because you see, that's a connecting word. It's telling us that we, we've got to put both of these verses together if we're going to understand them. It's a connecting us with verse 3, by way of a comparison, it's making a contrast. So he isn't forbidding us from adorning ourselves outwardly. He's contrasting it. He's comparing it to the inner adornment that he has just talked about. Okay? Now, or that he will talk about in verse 4. All right, now, we've talked about that in, in great detail back when we did First Peter. What we have not said much about is that the adorning ourselves in this passage is in the context of doing it for our husbands. Okay? And we see a similar thing when you go through and read the book of the Song of Solomon. Attempting to be physically attractive for our husbands is a good thing. All right, now, when it comes to outward appearance, here's our next um, point, number eight. Our outward appearance should be glorifying to God and honoring to our husbands. Okay, when, when it comes to our physical outward appearance, we basically have two questions. My physical outward adornment, my body, whatever. Is it honoring, is it glorifying to God? That's the first question. And then the second question is, is it honoring to my husband? or if you're single, to a future husband. All right, now, here's what I want you to notice that I didn't say. I didn't say, does my outward appearance compare to the women in the magazine? Does it compare to the women in the neighborhood? Does it compare to the women at the workplace? Will this outfit Will my abs or whatever, will they get a lot of likes on my Instagram feed? Okay. When it comes up to our outward appearance, we, that we really have a very simple principle to go by. And that is, is it going to line up with what God says? Is it pleasing God? Does it line up with what we learn about him in his word? And is it pleasing to my husband? And you know what? That's liberating. That's intended to be liberating. You see, because it's the world that would have you enslaved and think that you have to look a certain way and dress a certain way. But you may be thinking, 
But Heidi, our husbands, our husbands are around beautiful women all the time. They're around women that look like that. Or they're hit with images of women like this everywhere they go, half-naked women. Either they're looking at images of it or they're walking around on the streets whenever you walk out of the house. I know. But when men are approached about what they expect from their wives in this area, they constantly say, yes, appearance is important, but they do not expect their wives to be supermodels. They are more interested in effort and availability than they are about size and proportion. Effort? Are you making an effort to look nice to him? And availability. And you know what I'm talking about here, right? <laughs> effort and availability tell them that you are interested in them. Do you realize that every ad agency in the country is counting on you being insecure about your appearance and beauty? In fact, researchers have found that 70% of women who look at fashion magazines reported feeling depressed, guilty, and ashamed of their bodies after less than five minutes of flipping through those magazines. Five minutes. My guess is that perusing through Facebook and Instagram would probably have a very similar effect. And can I just tell you, there's a very easy fix for that one. Author Aaron Davis had this to say, and I want to make it our next point. Number nine, there is rest to be found in fasting from the images of the world. If you're going to have right thinking about beauty, particularly if you struggle with body images, you may have to take some radical actions and just turn off the TV, walk away from the magazines or the internet or whatever you have to do. And something else that we want to remember, here's our next point. Number 10, we must, we must think and function like a psalmist, not a Persian. Think and function like a psalmist, not a Persian. Now, I'm going to explain that one. In the book of Esther, there's no mention of God. We've said that was very intentional. There's no mention of his word. There's no mention of his law. There's no mention of his works. You've got people, they're feasting, they're drinking, they're living their lives as if there is no God. God's very much in the background if they're thinking of him at all. All right, now, uh, the psalmist is polar opposite. Okay, with, with the psalmist, God is in the center of everything. The psalmist, the psalmist looks at his body and he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He looks at his body and it points him to God. Okay, the psalmist looks up at the sky and says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The psalmist looks at nature. He looks at his world around him and he recognizes these are the works of God. And he makes the connection. He sees the goodness and the beauty in God's connection. And he's, make, and he's er, in creation. And he's making the connection. All right. He also, God isn't in the background for him. God's in the center. And his world is revolving around God. All right. Also, he, he sees God's beauty 
for himself, and then he is speaking about it and teaching it to others. All right, here's our next point. Number 11, how you view yourself and creation affects others. How you view yourself and creation affects others. If you regularly look at your body and think, oh, I'm just so fat, or I'm just so ugly, or old, or you're constantly dieting, if you're constantly doing whatever the latest fad is, do you understand? You will very likely raise a daughter that will do the same thing. We need to be more like the psalmist and pointing them and showing them the beauty of God. We need to be recognizing the beauty of God and the beauty of his works and the beauty of creation. Not just for our children, but for, for our own healthy thinking. We want to be giving our children a sense of the beauty of God and the things he calls beautiful. We want to be learning and appreciating those things for ourselves. I want to give you an example. The Bible says, beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Do you know the stories of the great missionaries? Women whose feet brought good news. Are you teaching your children about these missionaries? Because God describes them as beautiful. Do they know about Amy Carmichael? Or Mary Slessor? Or Mary Stamm? Or Elizabeth Elliot? or Helen Rosevere, or Gladys Allward, or Darlene Rose? Have you introduced them to these women? You may be thinking, no. I'm working on the Bible women. They're Bible women, and I'm trying to teach them those. That's good. But do they know the stories of Elsa and Belle and Moana, and Rapunzel, and Daryl, and Anna, and Jasmine. Do they know their stories? I was looking at a picture of all those characters, and there's some diversity among them, but they also have a few things in common. They have no body fat. They have perfect teeth, and flawless skin, and long necks, and big sparkly doe eyes, and Barbie doll waists, and adorable personalities. Our training begins early, says the University of Central Florida, when they did a study of three to six-year-old girls and found that nearly half were already worried about being fat, and roughly a third said they wanted to change something about their bodies. They were three to six. Now, I'm uh, really old school. I'm from a different generation, but I'm looking at that statistic and I'm thinking to myself, what did you expect? What did you expect would happen? I mean, you're going to parade in front of your daughters. You're going to give them a steady diet of these perfectly chiseled little beauties. 
with adorable personalities and they watch that over and over and over again. How long before they start to ask themselves or say to themselves, I don't look like that. We have got to be training our daughters and our son and ourselves to think biblically. We have to be pointing them to the beauty of the cross, the beauty of God's creation, and the beauty of his word, and the beauty of being made in the image of God. We have got to give them a gospel-centered approach to beauty. Foot binding <clears throat> was a beauty practice among the Chinese for a thousand years. It is estimated that about a billion women had their feet bound. The procedure started when a young girl was about four to seven years old. They would take a bandage about 10 feet long and two inches wide and they would wrap it tightly around the feet, forcing the small four toes under the sole of the foot. The bandage was tightened each day and the girl was put into progressively smaller and smaller sized shoes. The entire process took about two years. It, at the end of which the feet were essentially dead and utterly useless. Women have described the pain to have been excruciating. Their feet would bleed and stink. They would get infected. The girls would be unable to sleep at night for the pain. They couldn't walk. Parts of their feet would actually rot and fall off. Now the poor couldn't afford to do this. They needed their daughters to be able to work and walk. But the other mothers were obligated to bind their daughter's feet. Now why was that? Why put your daughter through it? Because a four-inch foot was considered beautiful. The way a woman tottered on a four-inch foot was considered charming. The culture said, this is beautiful. This is the way your daughter should look. And so mothers did it because they wanted their daughters to get ahead and have a chance in life. Now, I want you to hear me. The world will always have its own idea of beauty, and it will not be gospel-centered, and it will not be on the beauty of God. And so you are going to have to have very sound thinking yourselves, and you're going to have to be very intentional in preparing and teaching your children. The world is blasting a message about beauty and appearance and body image. And if you are not prepared, if you are not preparing your children, particularly your daughters, if you are not preparing them for the onslaught of images and ideas, then you might as well be binding her feet. Here's our last point. The world's ideas of beauty can be crippling. We must pursue and declare a gospel-driven beauty. Will you pray with me?
Father, I thank you that you are beautiful and that you have provided a remedy for our sin. I pray you help us to understand that. I pray that you will help us to be women that get, that get you and get beauty and that our desires will be gospel-driven. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.